I'm Connor Reed with words to that effect. Stories of the fiction that shapes popular culture. Supposedly, there's this old saying um, that the the first ship ever built was built to catch fish, and the second ship ever built was built to steal the fish from the first ship. Pirates have been around for a very long time. Piracy in the sense of stealing stuff while you're on a boat um, seems to have been around as long as there's been property and boats. I'm Manashok Powell. Everybody calls me Nush. I'm a professor of English at Purdue University, which is in West Lafayette, Indiana. Um, And my degree is in 18th century British culture and literature, uh, but I've kind of got a sideline going on now um, about pirates. Professor Powell's sideline has so far involved a number of published articles, a forthcoming journal special issue and a book, all in the field of pirate studies. Yes, there is an academic discipline of pirate studies. So what is it that attracts us to pirates, and why have we got such a well-developed set of pirate tropes, the same images and sounds we all see and hear when we think of pirates? Peg legs and eye patches, parrots and pirate accents, walking the plank, buried treasure, Jolly Rogers. Most people, it's fairly safe to assume, first discover pirates as a kid, maybe via classic childhood pirates like Long John Silver from Treasure Island or Captain Hook from Peter Pan. Professor Powell's route into the academic side of pirates came a little differently, via John Gay's The Beggar's Opera. A fox may steal your hens, sir. A whore, your hell. So this is a ballad opera from 1728. And ballad operas, in case you've forgotten, were a kind of reaction to the fashionable and more serious Italian operas that were so popular at the time. They were satirical and humorous, and they had a mixture of dialogue and music, but the songs all used popular tunes, so the audience would have been very familiar with them. And the most popular of all these 18th century ballad operas was The Beggar's Opera. It's more or less the only one that's still well known today. And it's also the basis for the Threepenny Opera, which you might know. You know, songs like Mac the Knife and Pirate Jenny and so on. So anyway, Gay had this huge smash hit on his hands with The Beggar's Opera. um, And he wrote a follow-up to it called Polly, who was one of the main characters from The Beggar's Opera. So she sort of gets top billing in the sequel. So anyway, when I was in graduate school, I read Polly for the first time, and it's just bonkers. Um, <laughs> so what happens is, you know, all the, the surviving main characters from the Beggar's Opera have been transported to the West Indies. Um, and um, McKeith, who is the hero of the Beggar's Opera, the anti-hero, has... Um, well, he's also a bigamist. So he's fleeing his wives. And to avoid being caught by them, he is disguised himself in blackface. And he's also um, escaped from his, you know, he's been sold into indentured servitude. He's escaped from his uh, masters and he's taken up as a pirate. Um, and Polly has chased after him um, to reclaim him. He's married her among a whole bunch of other women. And so she cross dresses also as a pirate. And they end up in the same pirate gang together, but don't recognize each other. Polly was published in 1729. It was never actually performed in Gay's lifetime because his satire was a little too close for comfort for the government at the time. And this date is important, 1729. It's a musical about pirate adventures in the Caribbean at a time when actual pirates in the Caribbean were on their way out. Because 1729 was the very end of what's usually called the golden age of piracy. So think about a pirate. You picturing one? Right, well, 
this is the period you're thinking about. Around the 1650s to the 1720s, the golden age of piracy. Now, this date range can be a little difficult to pin down because, well, because it's hard to decide something is officially an age of piracy if it's not always entirely clear what a pirate is. And it's not a straightforward definition. If you're on a ship and I attack you and steal your cargo, well then, for you, I'm a pirate. But if I have the approval of my government to disrupt the trade of an enemy country and you're from that country, well, then I don't think of myself as a pirate. I'm a privateer. And there was a very blurred line at this time between pirate and privateer. A privateer is basically someone who has expressed permission from their government to prey upon the ships from countries that they're at war with. A privateer had what was called a, a letter of mark from their government, and this gave them permission to attack enemy ships on behalf of the government. Take the West Indies in the 17th century, for example. This was a huge uh, issue, for example, in the 17th century West Indies because Spain is the major colonial power there. England would really like to get a toehold but doesn't have the money to start building you know, massive amounts of new ships. But there are existing ships and there are sailors who need work and there are you know, businessmen who want to put money into these ventures. And so you know, the Elizabethan government starts... Um, issuing letters of mark and, and commissioning privateers. And these are, you know, the sea dogs like Francis Drake and Walter Raleigh. Um, you know, they became, in, in English terms, um, major national heroes. Um, the Spanish understood them very differently. One person's national hero is another's criminal and pirate. And so the privateers of this period are happy. They have a job, they're given free reign to attack enemy ships, enrich themselves, enrich the crown. All is good. But then peace breaks out. Um, the privateers are now out of work. And all of the men who were making their livings as sailors on privateering expeditions are out of work. And there's no unemployment insurance. So what are they going to do? Well, they're going to continue preying on ships and stealing cargo. They're very good at it. And this same problem crops up again and again. But it holds across times and cultures. Um, this happens in the China Seas. It happens in the Pacific. It happens in the Atlantic. If you're in a you know state of war and you finance your war with privateers and then you don't have any kind of step-down program for peace, you're going to have a pirate problem on your hands. And so this golden age of piracy came out of a confluence of events. It was embedded in vast new networks of global trade, in colonialism, the slave trade, and in war and global conflict. Pirates became privateers, became pirates again. You had masses of wealth being moved across the world in ships, and you had distant colonies that were often lawless or misgoverned or just acting semi-autonomously. And they allowed piracy to thrive when it was in their interest. Very well-developed pirate networks emerged, so stolen goods could be easily offloaded and distributed, especially in the Caribbean. You also had what was called the, the Pirate Round. So this was a route that took ships from the Atlantic, around the tip of Africa, and into the Indian Ocean, where they could prey on pilgrim ships sailing to Mecca. As the century wore on, moving from the 17th into the 18th century, earlier generations of pirates passed into legend, so pirate exploits were recorded and written about and embellished, of course. And then this coincided with an expansion of print culture, so texts were more readily available, more people could read. So you've got newsprint periodicals, you've got trial recordings, you've got broadside ballads circulating, you've got literacy rates on the rise. So... 
it's much easier to follow what's happening with all these new pirates than it had been before. Then in the early 18th century, there was the Spanish War of Succession. So Charles II of Spain had no heir. There were claims from an assortment of different royal families across Europe. And inevitably, this all led to war. Once again, there were lots of opportunities for privateers during the war, but once it ended, the whole privateer-turned-pirate issue happened all over again. Throughout this period, pirates are really popular as characters in stories in Europe, because while they're violent and dangerous thieves and murderers, they're also far away. So, unlike in previous times, your small coastal village in Ireland, for example, is not going to get sacked by pirates. You're day-to-day life is not affected by piracy. There's romance and adventure, and there's always the attraction of getting rich quick, personified in the tale of John Avery. Better circumstances for a legend you could not wish, right? So, um, it's, you know, and you know that that pirate escapade had started in a labor revolt. They were on a privateering ship that, because of you know basically a paperwork issue, got um, stuck in a Spanish port, and they didn't want the men to desert, so they were trapped on board the ship. They weren't being paid. They weren't being fed very well. And the months are going by. And finally, they had enough. And <laughs> they said, OK, <laughs> we were supposed to be privateers. You're not paying us to do that. We're pirates now. This is our boat. And off they sailed. And so Avery, although he was probably called Henry Avery, but in the story, he's John Avery. So he and his crew carried out a few different acts of piracy before pulling off what is probably the most successful act of piracy in history. Teaming up with a number of other pirate ships, Avery was elected leader of the group for an attack on a large convoy of ships making a pilgrimage to Mecca. The crew managed to attack the ships and capture hundreds of thousands of pounds worth of gold, jewels and other precious cargo. And that's hundreds of thousands of pounds in the 1690s, so that's hundreds of millions in today's money. It's a huge amount of money. A bounty was placed on Avery's head, he was wanted across the world, and he was never found. Crucially, for the creation of a pirate legend, he got rich quick and he got away with it. And no one knows what happened to him, he just disappeared. Um, that's not typical. But that's the basis of, you know, kind of the literary pirate is that fantasy that, you know, you are oppressed and you can rebel against that and and possibly even get away with it. And there's so much myth making and romance and pirates. The grim reality of life on board a pirate ship or the fact that lots of these men were extremely violent murderers is kind of glossed over in favour of a daring life on the high seas and escape from oppression to a life where you make your own rules. A lot of the continued fascination with pirates is this idea of of escape, total escape, right? So the um, the sort of legal code for piracy is is hostis humani generis, the idea that pirates are the the common enemy of all humankind, and and a part of that is that they're people with no nation, that they kind of have no home, or that you know the only home is aboard the ship, or the sea is their true love, or you know all of that. Um, and so it's this this idea that you you know can totally sever your ties with all of the the things that can oppress you. Um, and so that has like a, a sort of a poetic charm to it, right? And you can see that, you know, in the Byronic heroes, like, um, you know, the Corsair, you can see that in Walter Scott's, you know, pirate Cleveland, these these men who are sort of like doomed because they're so misanthropic, but they're kind of hot in the way that they're misanthropic and doomed. Hot, doomed pirates. With that, let's take a quick break. 
If you would like to become a member of the Words to That Effect pirate crew, it's very simple. Head to patreon.com slash WTTE, throw a few silvers my way, and you'll get a bonus episode, shout out on the show, lots of other benefits. Maybe a WTTE eye patch. I'll work on that. We have another new patron this week. Thank you, Margaret. And secondly, the live show is this Friday, the 15th of November. There are still a few tickets left, so pick one up or tell someone you know if you're in and around Dublin. It's shaping up to be a really fun evening in a brand new podcast venue and with some BYOB. So bring a drink, bring a friend. How can you go wrong? Oh, and stick around at the end of the show, too. I have a podcast recommendation I think you'll really enjoy. Back to the Pirates. So from the 18th and into the 19th century, the pirate life becomes increasingly romanticised. Stories grow in popularity in lots of different forms, not just in print. There were singing pirates and dancing pirates, ballet pirates, opera pirates, pirate melodramas. And our modern image of the pirate started to form. While there were lots of different pirate stories, a huge amount of them originated in just a single text, A General History of Pirates, first published in 1724. And it ends up being the source text for so much of the pirate writing that comes after. It's really hard to overestimate how important the general history of the pirates is. So we have this incredibly important text that's kind of half fiction and half history, and everybody's reading it. It's reprinted and, you know, kind of edited and passed along all over the place. The general history blended embellished tales of real historical pirates with other stories that may have been loosely based on historical characters, but were largely just made up. And so, what about all of these typical features of the pirate then? Where do they come from? Pirates with peg legs and eye patches and parrots perched on their shoulders? Well, this is mostly Treasure Island, the usually successful pirate adventure tale by Robert Louis Stevenson, who you may remember from the Jekyll and Hyde episode very recently. And the story of Treasure Island, which drew on the general history of pirates, has remained hugely popular since its first publication as a novel in 1883, and it has been adapted countless times for stage and screen throughout the decades since. So what about buried treasure, treasure maps, X marks the spot? Well, that would be Treasure Island again. So, yeah, and pirates didn't bury their treasure. They, by and large, didn't have a lot of treasure. If they did have it, they spent it. Walking the plank? Surely that was a real thing. So pirates didn't really do this in the golden age. Um, they like killed people in all kinds of ways, but the plank walking doesn't seem to have been a thing that they did. Um, you do start to see walking the plank um, kind of in the, the last third of the 18th century. And it's the carryover from um, the trade in enslaved African peoples. Um, unfortunately, what was happening is that when for um, you know, insurance reasons, um, a, a slave ship would decide to murder a bunch of its slaves walking the plank is um, how they would do it. And so because there's a big crossover between slave ships and pirate ships, a lot of pirates had a history in the slave trade. You start to see pirates doing this to each other, um, as, like basically as a disciplinary measure, like if you're not being a good pirate, I'll make you walk the plank. Jolly Roger? Well, the Jolly Roger, another shorthand for pirates, was a real flag. But... Okay, so I'm now going to go on a short vexillological aside, because, you know, let's be honest, if you've waded this far into the details of historical pirates, I think you're the sort of person who wants to know more about flags. So here's the story with pirate flags. 
Emmanuel Wynne was the first recorded pirate to fly a black flag with a skull and crossbones on it in 1700, so the flag we imagine as the Jolly Roger. But pirates always had lots of flags on board, because as a pirate, your aim is to capture and board a ship. You don't want to attack and sink it, or you lose all the cargo. So you're trying to get as close as possible to the other ship without them suspecting who you are until maybe the very last minute. And you're also trying to avoid, obviously, getting attacked by another better armed ship. So a pirate captain would firstly have an assortment of national flags. So sometimes you want to trick other ships into thinking you're from the same country as they are, or from a friendly nation, so you can get close and attack them. Or maybe you want to ward off attack from a ship from another country by maybe flying the flag of an ally. But there were also other options. People know about the black flag, right? Um, But there's also the red flag. And the red flag means no quarter given. So the idea is if you see a pirate ship and it's flying a red flag, it means that if you resist even at all, they'll kill everybody on the ship. Um, And it's it's an attempt to basically cow everybody into instantaneous surrender. Um, The black flag means quarter will be given and it announces that you're a pirate. and the idea there, I guess, is that if you fly the red flag, the the ship may be so terrified um, that they'll try everything to escape. Whereas with the black flag, you may have a better chance because remember, you know, you're attacking a merchant ship. Most of the sailors don't want to die for somebody else's stuff. They're underpaid and they're underfed and, you know, they're not going to resist very hard. Um, the captain, of course, will will resist, but the sailors may not. So it's, it's sort of this calculus um, if you're on board a pirate ship, like which flag you fly at which point to try to, you know, get close enough to your enemy and then get them to surrender with the minimum amount of fight. But then you also want to be recognized. I mean, there's no point being a famous pirate if you can't strike terror into the hearts of people. Right, if you've got a pirate reputation. And so actually each pirate ship would kind of have its own combination of of signs that it would have. So it might have a skeleton or a bleeding heart or a flaming cannonball or like, you know, a combination of all of these. Or a skull and crossbones. That and walking the plank are, I think, really good examples of um, how something that's sort of, you know, used in a limited way um, in a fairly narrow historical context um, suddenly becomes like this universal shorthand for piracy once people start fictionalizing it. And there's one more aspect of every pirate that we're forgetting. Tis no longer befitting for the likes of us to pass judgment on him. He'll be coming face to face with old Flint himself, he will, and be made to give proper accounting for his evil ways. Amen. Why do pirates speak with a stylized West Country accent? Well, that would be Treasure Island again, but this time the 1950 Disney version of the story. The actor Robert Newton played Long John Silver, and he was from Dorset, and he decided kind of just to do an exaggerated version of his own accent. And it just kind of stuck. He went on then to play Blackbeard, and he used the same accent again. And soon, every pirate suddenly started speaking like they were from one particular region of England. Much to the annoyance of anyone from there, I imagine. Pirates have now established themselves firmly in the popular imagination. The lines between fiction and non-fiction have long been blurred, in many cases very deliberately. Stevenson does it because he's got, you know, he invents Long John Silver, but Silver sailed with, you know, Captain Flint, who's fictional, but also with like Blackbeard, who was not. Um, and then we have like, you know, Barry comes along with Captain Hook, who also like sailed along with a, a mix of fictional and non-fictional pirates. Legends and stories, historical accounts and works of fictional merge together. 
the best stories get taken from the life of one pirate and just applied to the next renowned pirate. Stories about John Avery's exploits become stories about Blackbeard's exploits become works of fiction. Um, and there's a way that you can just kind of invoke this growing canon of free-floating pirate signifiers to add, you know, this this instant, uh, you know, sort of flavor of all of that stuff, the, the predation and the rebellion and the misanthropy, but also like potentially sort of the sex appeal, like all of that kind of gets, you know, thrown into one bag um, and you can just attach it to whoever you need. Which is why I get to write books, so that's a good thing. (laughs) It is a good thing. Literature and culture would be much poorer without the pirate. for another words to that effect thank you so much for listening a huge thanks to my special guest Professor Manishik Powell I've put links to her work on the website I advise you have a look if you want to know lots and lots more about pirates which I know you do and that website by the way is wttepodcast.com where you can also find notes and pictures and links and transcripts and all previous episodes and lots lots more you can also follow me on Twitter at CEDREAD, C-E-D-R-E-I-D, or the show is on Instagram and Facebook at Words to That Effect. Music this week was from Blue Dot Sessions. And if you're looking for something else to listen to before the next episode, may I recommend the great podcast Soonish. So it's part of the Hub and Spoke Network, which actually has loads of shows I think you'd really enjoy if you like words to that effect. Soonish is hosted by Wade Rausch, and it looks at technology in the future, but it does it by putting people at the centre. So it's a show about how we as individuals are affected by technology, but also how we can shape the future. It's great. I'll play you a clip here from the first episode, which is all about Stanley Kubrick's vision of the future in 2001, A Space Odyssey. The movie came out in 1968, when I was just one year old. And it offered an incredibly detailed and inspiring forecast for life in the early 21st century. It showed a giant rotating space station and a whole city on the moon. It had astronauts traveling to Jupiter, and one of the main characters was a thinking computer named HAL. By putting the year in the title, the movie tied this forecast to a very specific date. So by the time the actual year 2001 rolled around, how many of Kubrick's predictions had come true? The answer is, almost none. And for years, I've been walking around with this question in my head. Why? Kubrick was famous for his obsessive realism. His collaborator on the script was the science fiction giant Arthur C. Clarke, who introduced the idea of the geostationary satellite nearly 20 years before engineers built the real thing. These were two very smart guys, and nobody has ever tried harder to make the future look real on film. But as a piece of forecasting, the movie was way off target. And the thing I'd like to understand is how the future we actually got turned out to be so different from the future portrayed in the movie. You can find Soonish at soonishpodcast.org or wherever you're listening to this right now. So that's it. Say hi if you're at the live show on Friday. And if not, I'll see you for the next episode in two weeks. This podcast is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network.